Welcome to AMDG. I'm Mike Jordan Lasky. June 20th is World Refugee Day, and I'll bashfully admit that the millions of displaced people around the world have not really been at the forefront of my mind lately. Local headlines have taken over even more than usual, but our faith calls us to have a global vision, and the COVID-19 pandemic has a disproportionate impact on those who are already vulnerable, including refugees. Many live in close quarters and refugee camps or urban areas with limited access to healthcare. Global resettlement of refugees has been halted, and international borders have been closed. All of these challenges pile up on top of the other challenges refugees face in the best of times. It's why the world needs organizations like the Jesuit Refugee Service, which serves people displaced from their homes in over 50 countries around the world. My guest today is Daniel Vela, the Director of Reconciliation for JRS, who has written a book of stories from her encounters with refugees called Dying to Live, Stories from Refugees on the Road to Freedom. Danielle is from the tiny Mediterranean island nation of Malta, and we sat down on the last day of her U.S. book tour in early March, right before the COVID-19 pandemic began its assault on North America. She shared incredible stories from her book and how her faith inspires her work. Thanks for joining us. Danielle Vela, welcome to AMDG. Thank you so much for taking some time at the end of your massive nationwide book tour to sit and chat with us about your new book you wrote for JRS, uh, Dying to Live, Stories from Refugees on the Road to Freedom. How are you this morning? Okay, tired after the tour, but fine. Tired after the tour. So we're, we're talking the, the day that you are headed back home, which is in Malta. That's correct. So, uh, and you've been all over the U.S. visiting with different uh, Jesuit universities, mostly universities. Is that right? Yes. Uh, talking about the book and sharing some stories. How so? How has that that book tour been? Well, it's been really good because the reaction of people in the universities, and we also went to two parishes. The reaction of the people who came has been really good in that they really wanted to listen to the stories of refugees. They felt this was really important to listen to individual stories, to understand why people are forced to leave their country and what is life like for them when they reach their destination. And the people who came to listen also really wanted to know what they could do to help, which I found really encouraging and as a sign of hope. So it was very good. Before we launch into talking about the book and some of those stories that you've been sharing around the country, just tell us a little bit about yourself. Uh, what, what is your background and your, your connection to, to JRS? Okay, so I started working for JRS in 1999. That's more than 20 years ago now. Uh, and I've covered different roles in my work at JRS International, the international office, which is based in Rome. I started out in communications, did some work on mission and identity, and now for the past five, six years or so, my focus has been on reconciliation. So what do you mean by reconciliation? What does that mean in that context? Okay, so we define reconciliation as recreating right relationships, uh, pretty much as as the Jesuits do. And for us, we try to recreate these right relationships amongst the JRS teams themselves, between refugees and host communities, and amongst different groups uh, in the refugee communities that we serve. 
So this book, you, you share really dozens or more uh, of stories of refugees from all over the world. Tell us a little bit about the process of writing this. How do you go about a project of this size? So I've been very lucky because I can turn to the JRS teams we have in many countries around the world and ask them to help me to gain access, as it were, to people on the ground, to meet refugees and to listen to their stories. So I would choose places where we have got JRS teams or partners of those teams. So when when you get to a place, let's bring us inside that process. So what, what is that like? Uh, you, you arrive somewhere and are people excited to share stories with you? Okay. Is it, was there reticence? Well, just bring us inside of the kind of behind the scenes look of uh, producing something like this. It differs. It differs from place to place. And it also differs, I think, um, where the refugee, the person is at in their journey to find asylum. So I've been in places like, for example, not for this particular book, but some years before, the Greek island of Lesbos, where you have people coming from Turkey in boats and they're just waiting to get to the next stage of their journey. So when you meet people there or when you meet people coming off a train to go on to another train to continue their journey or to try to cross the next border. So when they're on the move, so to speak, you can find them, grab their attention for some time, you know, get their story where they're at, but then they want to move on, you know. So that's a very, like, it's it, it depends on luck. It depends on people's willingness to talk. Sometimes they're so focused on their journey that they don't have the mind space to sit with you and to talk, but sometimes they do. So I've had conversations in train, in train stations, uh, just in the middle of the street, you know, just speaking with people and hearing what their hopes are and their challenges are on their journey. Other times, uh, it's more, it takes place in a more conventional environment, so to speak. So it could be an office of the JRS, it could be an office of a partner or organization who has been kind enough to arrange these trips. Sometimes I meet people who are already known to JRS, so they're ready to trust because they trust the JRS, so they're ready to trust me. Sometimes it's people who are entirely new to us, you know. Do people want to share their story? I would say yes, most people want to, although they also want to protect their identity as well. The stories are, again, so just almost you know, overwhelming to imagine what people are, are going through and you know, again forced to, to leave their homes. Is it just like an emotionally overwhelming experience for you to, to speak to so many people over and over again? Yes, it can be. And I try very much to make every interview an encounter. So it's not just, for me, this is really important. It's not just an interview to get a story because I want to get a story. Of course, yes, I want to get a good story, but it's also an encounter. Even if I meet people for a few, a few, like a, a few moments when they're on the move, as I was saying, I want them to know that I care about what happens to them and that they had to make this journey in the first place. So it's really about listening to people's stories and validating that story and how they feel about it and where they want to go. And the positive feelings and the negative ones too. So 
The interviews really range. Some could be a few moments long, some could be up to three hours long. Uh, and yes, it is emotionally overwhelming for different reasons. And mostly, I think the hardest thing to bear is two things. One is feeling so powerless many times to do anything about the horrific stories that we hear and to do anything to help people's hopes become reality. That's one thing. And the second thing is not knowing what happens to the people after you meet them. Sometimes I know if they're known to the JRS, then I know I can follow. But most of the time I have no idea. I just get that story in that moment of time and then I have to say, okay, I have to accept I'm not gonna know what's gonna happen and that stuff. How do you keep yourself sustained then through that process? Okay, so faith plays a big role for me. I do this because of my faith, because really I believe in a faith that does justice. And for me, listening to the stories of people who are marginalized and, and sharing those voices in their own words uh, is really a way of doing justice through truths. Um, so I'm sustained by my faith because in the end I, I believe that God knows and God has his ways and I have to trust that if I see uh, so much injustice and I do see a lot of injustice on all the stages you know wh why people leave their country on the journey and once they reach their destination if there is so much injustice in the end God knows and, and I have to believe that God is looking after each one of these persons whom I meet I surrender them to him talk about the importance of sharing stories of refugees in their own words and being able to do that uh, in this book, again, among your just hundreds of interactions. Are, out of all of these stories uh, in the book, are there any that really kind of stick with you, ones that you find yourself coming back to and, and thinking about often? Yes, there are, definitely. Would you want to share one, one or two of those with us? Okay, so I can share one which stays with me because it was so incredibly sad. And this is the story of Martin is his name in the book. It's not his real name. And I met him in a refugee settlement in northern Uganda. Martin was in his late teens when rebels came to his home in South Sudan in the context of the civil war and called all the family to come outside. Uh, they wanted to rape his sister and his mother said no. And so they forced the mother to choose between her life or her daughter being raped. She chose to die to save her daughter. So Martin witnessed this. He says his mother died in his arms. And then those same rebels took him and forced him to be a child soldier. They forced him to break him in, as it were, to shoot another man. And this is something he will never forgive himself for. And for me, this is the greatest tragedy of his story because despite all they did to dehumanize him, he remains a very loving and gentle person. Martin wants to be a lawyer now. He wants to be a lawyer because he wants to work with the poor and to make up for what he has done. And I hope he will manage, but it will be very hard for him to do so. At the same time, you talk to in the text uh, a little bit about some of the kind of scriptural references you see kind of playing out uh, in your encounters, uh, including references to uh, the Good Samaritan finding along this journey, that these different journeys, people who are Good Samaritans or people who are motivated by like the call to love our neighbor as ourself. Um, are there those moments of hope as well that, that you've seen and have been inspired by? 
Yes, there are definitely uh, two things that stand out for me, which I see really as signs of hope. So you mentioned the Good Samaritan. This was this 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 term and the story in the scripture, which I love, kept coming back to me because the people met so many Good Samaritans, sometimes, sometimes in the most unlikely of places. So one story that really stands out in my mind is of this young man who was in Morocco and trying to make his way to Spain. And he was so alone, penniless, tired, depressed, that he approached a man who was selling drugs at a bus station where many homeless people live. Uh, and he, the man, instead of giving him the drugs, asked him why he wanted them. And this young man shared his story, which was a tragic story about how he had been basically snatched from his parents in the Western Sahara and forced to work almost like a slave uh, in, in, this, in this camp. And he managed to escape and he shared his story with this man. And the man, instead of giving him drugs, gave him the money, actually put him on a bus to go to the border with Spain and gave the bus driver money to give him when he reached his destination. So acts like this, really unexpected, and some are more expected, like volunteers in the US, volunteers in France, for example. But all these acts are really, uh, really give hope, you know, uh, in a world that, as I put it, creates and rejects refugees at the same time. That reality is very harsh, but there is these, there are actual people who, who don't believe in that and who work to create a different world. So that, that phrase is interesting to me, a world that creates and rejects refugees at the same time, maybe not seeing uh, all of those connections. And we know here in the United States, there sometimes can be uh, feelings of suspicion or, or skepticism around uh, refugees. Uh, what, what are some things, though, you've learned about uh, refugees? All of these stories, again, very different, that might help to break down some of that fear or, or kind of show the real humanity uh, inside these big political issues. So I think this is one of the main reasons why I wrote this book, and has to show that behind this, the huge statistic of 70 million refugees and, and displaced people in the world, those are the statistics of the UN now, behind this huge anonymous statistic is 70 million lives, each with their own story. So there is no typical refugee profile. And this is important to underline because increasingly, there are so many sweeping stereotypes about refugees, about who they are, about where they come from, about why they turn up, about the risks they supposedly pose to life as we know it. So it's really important to listen to the individual stories. And this is why the refugees welcome the chance to share their stories, because in a way it's setting the record straight. This is my story, listen to my story, why I left my country, what was the journey like, and what is life at my destination? But listen to me. One guy I interviewed, he's resettled here in the US, he said, you need to listen to our voice. I'm Nick Repatrizone, author and facilitator of the Jesuit Book Club. Our summer reading selection is The Ninth Hour by Alice McDermott, a National Book Award-winning author who tells heart-wrenching stories about Catholic families. In the novel, Annie is a young widower who is pregnant and unsure where to turn. She's taken in by the little nursing sisters of the sick poor, 
The Ninth Hour is a gripping story of women supporting each other through faith and of the bond between mothers and daughters. We'll start reading and discussing the novel on Facebook the week of June 21st. Then on Monday, July 27th, AMDG host Mike Jordan Lasky and I will have a live online conversation about the book. And here's the most exciting part. Alice McDermott herself will join us for the discussion. I'm really excited for this unique opportunity and hope you will join us. Sign up for the book club at jesuits.org slash book club. I look forward to discussing this incredible book with you. So while you've ha- heard these individual unique stories, I'm sure there are themes that have come up over and over again uh, through those conversations. What, what are some of those, those themes? What are some of the elements of stories that you hear repeated? Okay, so yes, there are echoes of experience that keep coming out again and again, and not just in writing this book, but over the past 20 years, I think, that I've been, I've been listening to refugees and sharing their stories. And one thing that really comes out is the, the danger of, in a way, losing your identity when you have to leave everything that you know, losing the sense of who you are. And again, this is why I believe in the power of st- storytelling because I believe the way we, sh- we, we say our story shows how we understand our reality, how we understand ourselves and how we want other people to understand our story and us. So that's one thing I see. Something else I see is, yes, the horrors of why people flee their country, the many awful things and how horrible they are and how varied the courses could be but also the journey itself, how dangerous the journey is. Most refugees are forced to travel through so-called illegal pathways to seek the asylum, which is their internationally recognized right. And these pathways are controlled by traffickers and smugglers and are very dangerous places indeed, through mountains, desert, sea. So many don't live to tell the tale. Uh, On the positive side, again, because although this is a very hard book to read because it's stories which are really tough. On the positive side, I mentioned before the acts of hospitality and generosity, but also um, so many of these come from the refugees themselves. And this is something, uh, it's something I really want to underline that in helping refugees to live life to the full, which is what they sacrifice so much for, that's why the book is called Dying to Live, we're helping them to become men and women for others, which is what they really want, which is what their concept of being fully alive means. This is something which I heard in different words through many of the stories I heard along the way. I would like to share just one uh, from a young man from Eritrea called Abdel, Abdel Mohammed, and and he really talks about the importance of a single gesture because when he was in, he had just managed to survive the Sahara and had reached Libya, which is a very dangerous place for refugees to be. And he was alone in the middle of the town. He was shaking, his clothes were all torn. He was very thirsty after the desert, which he had managed to survive. And he had nothing, no money or anything. He suddenly decided he saw a man putting some goods into his car and he went to ask him for help. And this man took him to the market and he bought him clothes and food. He took him to his home for years. His home was Abdel's home and he found him a job 
and he really gave him a, a chance at life again. And Abdel says, for him, the moral of the story is that he recognizes the importance of what one single gesture can do. And he now, he's well settled as a refugee in Italy, and he spends his time helping other homeless refugees on the streets. So this is something that to me really comes out strongly in the book. I imagine in your travels, you might you have a unique perspective on the work that JRS does around the world, maybe having seen more than almost anyone in terms of what the responses are. For folks who might not get to travel or be as familiar, what are what is JRS doing around the world? I'm sure a, a wide range of things, but um, what about the mission really uh, inspires you? So J JRS is doing a lot of different things around the world. So we have a mission to accompany, serve, and advocate the cause of refugees. What really inspires me every time in all these years is our mission of accompaniment, that we accompany. Uh, in the beginning, we used to say, in the beginning of, of JRS, it's uh, being with rather than doing for. Yes, it is that, but I think it's also the way that we do. So yes, we offer professional services in a range of fields, most of them focused on education, livelihoods, and psychosocial ser services, and legal aid too, in some places where we are. And there is more, I'm just saying what the main, uh, the main areas are. But it's how we offer these, these services. It's the way we, we try to build relationship with the people whom we serve. And that's something which really amazes me time and again. And it's something with the, which the refugees appreciate so much. You mentioned on your on your book tour, you've come across people who have come out to, to hear you who are really wondering what they can do. How can they be involved in that mission of accompaniment and, and hospitality? What are some things that uh, folks in communities in the US or, or Canada, people who are listening to our show, what, what are some things they can do? So I'm probably not the best person to answer this question, but what I would say, and what I always say is, again, come back to the stories and the power of the stories. Because, because of the stereotypes that are out there, one of the things, and this was, re was told to me, especially by refugees who are resettled here in the US, that they really want people to listen to their story and to see them as an individual. So I think emphasizing this over the stereotypes that are out there is really, really important. Then I, I would just say, look at the community around you. Do you have refugees resettled here? How can you help them? What can you do in creative and sensitive ways? When refugees come here to be resettled, they have just three months to be self sufficient. Imagine how difficult that is. So they really have to hit the ground r running. Now there are resettlement agencies here who do a marvelous job in helping them. And I was, uh, I was uh, really lucky to be welcomed by one such agency when I came to interview refugees here. They do an amazing job, but they really need to focus on getting refugees to be able to fend for themselves. So there's so much that the refugees need to process in this time, so much issues of identity, of belonging, and of simple and of really simple things, like how do I catch a bus or how do really simple everyday things. And it's amazing how the straw can break the camel's back. So really finding ways to help. 
my last job, I worked with some a Catholic charities agency in New Jersey that did refugee resettlement, and one of their their staff members was himself. He had been a refugee. They had a few staff members who had been resettled in in the states. And there's a young man named Mustafa from originally from Iraq, and um, he came to the U.S. when he was a high school student and thrust into a high school speaking no English and. He's learned the language and now is a flawless English speaker. And he, one of his jobs is going to the airport when groups, you know, arrive, especially when he can speak Arabic for folks who are coming who speak Arabic. And I think he has said that his message to them is, I did this, you can do this. And just this, that, that power of that, you know, accompaniment, seeing that there, that solidarity, someone who had gone through this kind of unimaginable trauma himself, being able to kind of turn around and, and be a, a person of welcome, just like kind of the incredible um, perseverance, hope in action, just really... Uh, powerful and it sounds like you've seen a lot of stories like that as well of as you mentioned the, the refugees themselves wanting to be men and women for others yes. um, having been aware of their own struggles wanting to then kind of be able to respond to the the needs of others around them uh, it's pretty inspiring selflessness when you think about that it could be easy to just you know want to like not think about anyone else just get me to the next plot spot but it sounds like uh you see a real solidarity within the refugee communities. Yes. And again, this, this, I think, again, I go back to the, to what I said in the beginning, there is no typical refugee profile. So it differs a lot from person to person, but I have seen not only examples of it, but how they emphasize it, you know, uh, like one of them in a refugee camp in Ethiopia told me we're only here in this world for a short time. So we need to help others as much as we can. And he really does his best. And I want to read uh, a short piece from the book, which is uh, what a young refugee from Pakistan said. So now today he's resettled here in the US in San Diego. And he really suffered to find his safe place. So today he's very happy. He's doing very well. But this is what he says, and I want to read it. Because he says he became a refugee to survive, not sorry, not to survive from day to day, but to live, to be fully alive. And he has a crystal clear understanding of what this means for him. Truly living means living in the hearts of people, not just doing your thing, because everyone does that. What I'm trying to say is, if someone is glad you were born because you helped them, that's when you are truly alive. And these words for me really say it all, you know. Yeah, and that underscores such an important point, too, is that, you know, we want what we want for everyone. If people of faith that be able to kind of live out what, you know, God's hope for you um, and not just to be able to scrape by, but to really thrive and flourish. So it's not just a matter of, you know, surviving, but kind of being able to kind of move through that uh, to a place where you really feel like you can use uh, your gifts uh, to make the world closer to, to God's dream for it. So uh, a beautiful testimony. Um before we, we, we wrap up, is there anything that uh, anything else you wanted to, to share? Maybe things that have surprised you or uh, when you've kind of been, been doing this work or uh, during the tour, things that people not, might not kind of expect uh, when they come into the book. Why, why, should, uh, why should people pick up your book? I think people should pick up my book, and this is becoming like a broken record script, but is, is really to discover the stories behind the statistics. You know, and to be able to look beyond the stereotypes which miss or distort everything that is important to know. And I think in reading this book, we really get a picture of the world as it is. You know, 
And I think we need to know that. We need to know that because then we can see how we, as believers, can act in that world and make a difference. We need to know. So I would encourage people not only to read this book, but also to read other things to really find out what's going on in the world, why so many millions of people are being displaced, what are their journeys like, because they are forced to travel illegal pathways, and what is life like at their destination, if they are lucky enough to reach it, which I believe don't. So this is why I would encourage people to read it. Well, Danielle, thank you so much for sharing your story, for your work, for sharing the stories of uh, so many people uh, around the world. And uh, safe travels to you uh, on your way home and and blessings on uh, all the work you have ahead of you. Thank you. AMDG is a production of the Jesuit Conference of Canada and the United States and recorded at our headquarters in Washington, D.C. The show is edited by Marcus Bleach. Our theme music is by Kevin Lasky. The Jesuit Conference communications team is Marcus Bleach, Eric Clayton, Dara Sump, Megan Leapsch, Becky Sindelar, and me, Mike Jordan Lasky. Connect with the Jesuits online at jesuits.org, on Twitter at Jesuit News, Instagram at We Are the Jesuits, and Facebook.com slash Jesuits. If you or someone you know might be called to discern a vocation to the Jesuits, connect with a Jesuit vocation promoter at beajesuit.org. Drop us an email with questions or comments at media at jesuits.org. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And as St. Ignatius of Loyola may or may not have said, go and set the world on fire. <laughs>